0: Are you a sneakerhead, a baller? Want to know about the hottest brand you can lace up and run with? Well, get ready, cause we got all the details right here. It's Kicks and bricks, where we got game, on the streets and on the court. Here's your host, Jamel Cutler. Welcome to another edition of Kicks and Bricks. Today we have one of the performance pioneers at Reebok. He's the architect behind the Run DMX 10. It's probably the, the most memorable running shoe of the 1990s. Today we have Bill Marvin. What's going on, Bill? How are you doing?
1: Um, uh, I'm, I'm super glad to be here.
0: All right, so before we jump into the Run 10, can you like explain like how did you get involved in the sneaker world?
1: Uh, so, I was going to school for product design. I was always pretty good at drawing stuff. Um, you know, I, I like sports growing up as a kid. I um, liked to make stuff. Uh, I ran out of money for school, and I was working at Walgreens. Um, and I got an opportunity to work uh, at Reebok uh, as a model maker. Like, and this was 1993, so before 3D printing and computer modeling, uh, someone would carve like a bottom unit for a shoe, like a new shoe design out of, out of wood most, uh, so the designer can see it and make changes. And so marketing can see it and sign off on it. Uh, so I took that job and I got to see the design department and, uh, and that's what I was going to school for. And I, I kind of fell in love and I had some great mentors and the rest is, uh, you know, so that pretty much got me started, but I always like, I, I told you the other day, uh, the first time I saw a Nike Harachi in like 1991 or two, whenever they came out, uh, it sort of blew my mind. Uh, and then I got to Reebok and uh, Stephen Smith was doing his thing uh, with the, the Pump Fury. And I was hooked, that was it.
0: Right, it's funny that you bring up the Hirachis that the Fat Five made famous, like Kushner-wise, is very similar to the Runtin.
1: I, I wore them without, I just liked them because they were a total departure. Like every shoe always had like a underlay overlay type of construction. And and this shoe had like an open like back, like a sandal that was injection molded. It had like windows in the upper and it had that neoprene booty. And I just thought they were so cool. I wore them without laces and stuff.
0: All right, so like besides the Arachis, like which other sneakers were you into before you got into designing?
1: So there was a, uh, this was before Foot Locker and stuff like that. There was a, there was like a sports like shop that just had everything from like, you know, hockey equipment to tennis rackets. And they always had like a small section of shoes. And man i bugged my mom to buy me a pair of nike cortez's when they first came out uh i don't even i forget what you call it but they had a tennis shoe it was like a mid cut with like this sort of pink orangey color on it and like teal green and uh and it was a white it was a white shoe but no one had ever put colors like that on a shoe where i hadn't seen it before and uh Man, I must have stood in that store and looked at those things for, like, embarrassing amount of time. Never, never could have, couldn't convince my mom to buy them, but. Uh. <laughs> right.
0: And I think, like, um, like Reebok, they changed the game as far as tech goes, like. And you were there for many years. Like, he talked about, like, the technological advances in, um, in sneakers that kind of led to Reebok having some of the press the best performance base shoes in the 1990s?
1: So I, I think you nailed it. Like, you know, if, if you look at any company, like, throughout history, like, you know, like Nike, you could argue, was, like, super strong in basketball or, or running. And uh, there are some brands that are just obviously running brands, like Asics or something like that. Um, but Reebok, man, they, you know, they were they so when i was in seventh grade they they sort of came on the scene with like uh those basketball shoes with a big tongue and you know people were wearing like tighter cut pants and like big sneakers then uh it was, you know like late 80s early 90s and uh, that was the first time i saw reebok and they had a pretty cohesive design language but they were they were just the craziest stuff like on the market like literally that's why people bought them is they. They had the craziest, like, technology and the craziest design language. And Nike was relatively tame by comparison. Uh, and that sort of started an arms race. Uh, and by the time I got there in 1993, uh, they already had sort of pioneered uh, carbon composite plates. Uh, the pump, you know, they, they had been working on that for almost, what, 8, 10 years by then. Um, there was a lot of tech uh, Hexalite uh, there was a lot of technology development uh, that they had sort of built and they had a great they had a great team and, and uh, took it pretty seriously
0: like as far as tech goes like um, can you explain like how much time goes into crafting the tech and a concept for a sneaker
1: so it, it, it reigned me in if I get too broad but like what what happened was in the in the late seventies and early eighties, like there were like athletic shoes were relatively new, and you I mean you've read Phil Knight's book, like the whole Oregon track thing, and, and Nike uh, sort of realizing there was an industry there, and they started hiring uh, biomechanics uh, uh, people, scientists, engineers, uh, and designers. And, uh, and it was all about making the, the human machine better, like increasing human performance and uh, stronger, lighter, faster. And they started dumping money into it and, and people responded, you know, and, and, uh, and it was an industry based on authenticity. So, so you say my stuff is the best and, and our stuff is the best because, you know, Michael Jordan is the best athlete or best basketball player in the world. And he, he wears our stuff. And people respond to that because it's authentic, and uh, and the technology has to support it, and and it it created sort of that that marketing model uh, in the industry for athletic footwear, and then it was an arms race, <laughs> and it was who could come up with the coolest stuff and prove that it worked and that it wasn't gimmicky, uh, and and could you make it and manufacture it at scale and would people dig it?
0: Like earlier, you mentioned the pump technology can can you give us like a little history of um of the pump at rebot so i worked for uh a
1: guy named paul which for probably about 20 years uh 20-ish years and change he's a legend he's all over the place uh maybe i'll interview him next uh but he He came in, I think, from the marketing side and pretty quickly, he had a a really deep research background. Um, I think he, you know, his story was he was he was going to school to be a PhD researcher and sort of uh, stumbled into the footwear industry through through Nike and ended up at Reebok. Uh, And he sort of led the technical development team through most of the course that I was at Reebok. Uh, And he's credited with really. Uh, uh, sort of the inventor of the pump, a lot of contributors, of course, but uh, you know, in the end, someone has to take the idea and actually figure out how to make it work and how to make it at scale and at cost uh, and, and make a business case for it. And that's sort of what he did. And over the course of the 20 years, we never ever stopped working on it. We literally applied the pump technology to everything that you could think of that was accessible. <laughs> All
0: right. So now um, I kind of want to jump into the um, to the DMX Run Ten. Like, what was the inspiration behind that shoe? Cool. All
1: right. So I gave you my sort of career trajectory. Uh, I I came from the model shop, right? And and I jumped in with like two years of of design school under my belt into like a bunch of like professional designers, right? And, and every, every quarter, every season, everyone would get their design briefs and they would sketch and they would we would put them all on the wall. And uh, if, if you've ever been to design school or seen any sort of corporate design review, you can probably imagine what it looks like. It's a bunch of like sort of basically cubicle walls uh, covered with like, uh, like a corkboard type of thing where you can just pin up sketches. And we'd sort of wander around as a group and look at everyone's like sketches and it and like everything like competitive and and you know and a group of designers that sit together all day long and talk about ideas and whatever like that competition like like always always starts to kick off and it turned into who could cover the most area with the craziest sketches uh and that was the name of the game and uh <laughs> so. Again, I had literally nothing going on in my life. I was like 20, barely. I think I was like 19 or 20. Uh, and it was either figure out how to make it work at Reebok or go back and work at Walgreens. Uh, and I still kept that job at Walgreens while I was working at Reebok for a while uh, to pay the bills. But uh, it turned into that that competition to just who could cover the walls with the craziest stuff. And, and it it turned out that like when people sort of toured around and looked at all the sketches, like if you could get the biggest crowd response or like the biggest like, Ooh, and ah out of like some sketch that could turn into a project. And uh, so after like almost a year working in the mall shop and trying to get into design, uh, you know, mentors feeding me projects and and such. They, they finally let me uh, join the design department and they're like, what category do you want to work in? And I'm like, ah, you know, like running would be good or outdoor or basketball. All like, right, cool. We'll put you in women's fitness. Uh, so uh, these design reviews were my one opportunity to just cover the wall with crazy stuff. And, uh, and some of that crazy stuff uh, sort of turned into what DMX 10 was. Uh, the Advanced Concepts Group had been working on DMX 10 for a while. Uh, and they they had a part and they had sort of the, the framework figured out, but they didn't know how to package it and they didn't know how to sell it. And there was constant political infighting over what it should look like um, and who would take ownership of what it looked like. Uh, so I think a good solution for everyone was to take some kid that knew nothing uh, and was throwing crazy sketches against the wall um, and, and throw that project at me. So that was sort of how I got got my chance It's just someone saw some crazy drawings and they're like, hey, this would be great for DMX 10. Uh, And the rest is, you know, as deep as you want to go. It's a rabbit hole.
0: All right, so like back then in the 90s, like most of the classic shoes or the cool shoes was like on a basketball end. But from my perspective, like aesthetically, like the Run 10 was one of the first cool running sneakers that, that I could remember people wearing.
1: So it was a big controversy because I I literally knew nothing about running. Like I I I didn't have a running background. Like I you know, I played sports, but I, I, I never considered myself a runner. Um and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a running shoe conventionally. The um the guy that was running the uh the inline running group actually quit over it. <laughs>
0: Can you give us the backstory to that?
1: Uh, sure, so there's, there's, you know, a whole bunch of sort of running shoe design orthodoxy that, you, that, was, that hadn't been challenged at that point. Uh, so shoes always had sort of a, a, a 50-50 overlay, underlay kind of strategy. So you would have usually like a sandwich mesh body, uh, and then you would have a toe cap, you would have a, a quarter overlay and eye stay, a, a heel cap, a heel counter, um, and then a bottom unit that was generally uh, flared out, uh, drafted like a running shoe with like a, a running toe wrap. The idea. So w- w- one of the challenges that the advanced team faced with DMX ten. Uh, so it, it, let me back up a, a little bit. Let, let, me, um, let me go all the way to the sort of executive decision to to pursue DMX 10. Uh, Reebok was basically getting its ass kicked by Nike uh, at that period. And all the, the, the feedback that came back from the sales team was that when you put shoes on the wall at a retail store, it was always lateral side facing out. Uh, And people look at the shoes and Nike had a visible uh, cushioning technology on the side of their shoes with Nike Air. Uh, And it was really striking. And they were doing a really good job with the Nike Air Max, uh, just making it look super technical and and really sort of advancing that tech story. And and they, you know, uh, they they were killing it. Uh, So Paul Fireman was the guy that at that point pretty much owned Reebok. So it was, a, it was a public company, but he was the 51% stakeholder and he was also the CEO and his friends and family were on the board. So he pretty much ran the company and he just decided to gamble absolutely everything on this one project. <laughs> uh, and, and the project was specifically to come up with a, with a, a lateral presentation of, of a cushioning technology that could compete with Nike Air. And, and sorry, I, I'm just rambling on, but to eventually close the loop on this, my solution was to wrap, uh, was to use clear rubber uh, that was brand new and crazy, um, and then wrap it around uh, the part up onto the midsole, uh, which was a good solution because you can see the part um, a little bit better. And one of the problems with the part was just from the edge, all you could see was the parting line. So it's a good way to see the part make it look different and then actually make it look a little bit bigger and more exciting than it was but it literally violated all the rules of of a good running shoe bottom uh, at that time which was you know minimal rubber wraps maximum flexibility and the MX10 was not flexible and was covered with rubber wraps uh, and the upper was was uh, a departure as well.
0: Right. And one of the things that I liked about the shoe is the cushioning system. Like, Can you talk about like the tech that went into developing the cushioning system? So this, this is
1: all development that was done before I joined the project. Um, there, was, there was, of course, a dialing in and sort of fine-tuning uh, part. And then I, I got to participate in the evolution of DMX past DMX 10. But when I joined the project uh, there was already a part, and credit where credit's due uh, Stephen Smith, the guy who did the Fury um, actually worked on that part with Paul Witchfield uh, and they had pretty much most of the the bugs worked out. Uh, the, other, the other guy was uh, the biomechanics guy Spencer White, uh, who actually appeared in the the uh, commercials for it, but the the basic premise is most people, like ninety percent of the population, on heel strike lands on the outside lateral edge of their heel, and the idea is that there you have a collapsible uh, structure, uh, and and Nike used a, a thin. Uh, a, a very thin compliant film structure uh and the problem they had was was it was hard to keep uh the pressure inside because any gas you have wants to slowly migrate through any barrier film uh and you know when you have a helium balloon all the helium leaks out uh so they ended up having to do all sorts of uh things to do that so our uh and of course they patented it. So, so Paul's solution was to use blow molded plastic. Uh, and the walls had some rigidity themselves, but basically the idea was you, you landed on the lateral outside of your keel and that was a softer, more compliant crash zone. And then that air would evacuate out of that chamber and be projected over to the medial side. So after you finished your keel your crash landing your foot then goes into mid stance uh, and it would pressurize the medial side to prevent uh, the runner from over pronating. Uh, and then hopefully it would keep you flat in a neutral position and set up for towing off. And then when you toe off, you would translate your weight uh, onto the front of the shoe and it evacuates the pods uh, underneath your, your, your forefoot and adds an element of, of sort of softer cushioning and not only that, but the chamber in between the forefoot and the heel was gated, so there was sort of a delayed, squishy effect back and forth as you went toe to heel.
0: Right, and and I love the DMX technology of the shoe. Like to me, it kind of feels like you're walking in socks.
1: <laughs> That's it, yeah. So I mean, part of the part of the problem was we we substituted. Uh, basically, energy translation. So when you are transferring weight to your forefoot and pushing off. Oh, there goes the doorbell and the dog. My daughter's friends are coming over. It's going to be loud. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so as you, um, as, as you push off, right, you're, you're squeezing that air underneath your foot and sending it backwards. So you're losing some of that energy on, on push off. So we, we substituted some efficiency in, in running for, for
0: comfort. Like prior, like prior to the release of the Run 10, was DMX Tech used like in previous sneakers for Reebok? Or was this, or was this like the first time that it was ever used?
1: That's a really good question. Um, so again, this is a lot of like history before me. Uh, I hope I don't get it wrong. I apologize if I do. As I, as I understand, it was a walking part, and it was a walking part that started uh, as, a, as a patent that was licensed from a doctor, uh, and it was called Dynamax Cushioning Technology, and it was basically a, a blister in a rubber outsole. So if you picture a rubber outsole, and then a cavity uh, facing down towards the walk surface, like a big bubble. And it was, a, it was a big bubble in the forefoot and a big bubble on the heel, and it was connected by a channel. And then when the outsole was glued to a flat midsole, it made a, a fluidly uh, connected airtight chamber that the air would go back and forth. So I think that was the beginning of it, and it was made as a walking shoe. Um, and it was licensed, but then what happened predictably is when the, the bond started to break down between the outsole and the midsole, the part would, um, would create a negative pressure and it wouldn't, it wouldn't rise back up again. So it would get deflated and stuck (laughs) and then it would just make bad squishing noises. So they eventually started that, um, bull molded part that was first two cavities, and then the DMX Ten was expanded to ten smaller pods, so I think that's the the origin of it.
0: Like back in the '90s, like people had this general idea of what futuristic sneakers was supposed to look like, like kind of like the Back to the Future sneaker. Like, yeah. Like, and now the Run Ten, like it was intended to have a futuristic look, but instead it kind of had like a modern day silhouette like how people, how people kind of design sneakers today.
1: So I've always, uh, I've always drawn the majority of my inspiration from manufacturing techniques. And I, I mentioned the, the sort of contest of trying to throw the craziest stuff on the wall uh, that we could as designers. And one of the technologies that was like sort of new and emerging uh, at that time in the early 90s was injection foam. Uh, and it doesn't sound particularly exciting, but before then, everything was compression molded foam, which means that you take a, a big machine and you squirt uh, liquid plastic into it, basically, and that expands into a big sheet. And then they pull that sheet out that's already EVA foam, and then to mold it, into like a shoe outsole, you'd cut it up into a, a, a piece that's a little bit too big and stick it in the mold and heat it up and, and smash it, squish it into, uh, into shape. And then when you demold it, that's, that's the midsole. But what that means is to get really high sidewalls of the midsole wrapping up into the upper, uh, it's really hard to fill. And it's difficult to get a high sidewall. You remember like the Grant Hill and stuff like that in the nineties? like, like just like the whole shoe was a midsole. <laughs> like, so that was one of the little contests that like we were, that was going on. Like every designer like was, was trying to make like shoes with crazy midsoles and stuff like that. And injection foam, the, the, the plastic is melted. Pellet stock is melted and then shot into the mold and uh, the shape of the directly into the shape of the midsole. And the, the midsole is, the midsole mold is 30% smaller than the actual midsole that you're making. So you can get crazy undercuts and really tall sidewalls. And that was, that was the promise of, of injection foam. So my upper design was basically an entire upper made out of foam (laughs) and the, the, that lattice shaped tongue was actually attached to the mold. And, and it would be cut out and stitched into a piece of fabric and then stitched back on. But my idea was basically like the sort of Crocs type of thing with like the DMX 10 pods on the bottom and a clear outsole. And uh, none of that made it. I had to figure out how to make it out of more normal textiles. But I was determined not to put any synthetic leather on it at all.
0: Like the move in Airtech was pretty dope too. Like, and then eventually it branched off to Allen Iverson's Reebok line.
1: Yep, yep. So, I, I don't know what year that was, but the uh, obviously the the business idea was to move DMX10 and DMX technology through every every different category, and the challenge was to figure out. The motion and the movement for for each category, and then make a shoe that was appropriate for it.
0: Otherwise, it you know it ran the risk of being gimmicky or whatever. Did DMX Tech ever like make it to like a big time basketball shoe, or was that tech kind of just reserved for like a running sneaker?
1: Well, I, I mean the the Everson shoe, right? So I I think that was I mean. Yeah, that's that's you know, big star, and they may have even kept it exclusive to him. I I don't know. So, I, so the 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 thing you have to understand about Reebok is, and uh, and from an outside perspective, it's like why is it so disjointed? It's really political, and uh, and the technology group that I worked for and the. Uh, the units that managed assets and the inline basketball group uh, where there's, there's some difficult politics there. So (laughs) it was always a struggle.
0: And like um, the run 10 kind of paved the way for the Reebok DMX series 2000, you know, the sneaker that was made for Swiss beats, like it featured DMX tech and a designer, Xavier Jones. Like he had this shoe with the orange colorway, and, um, and, a, and a synthetic suede, and, and that kind of paid homage to you and your contributions to the Run 10.
1: So Xavier is a, is, a, is a really special dude. Uh, I did like 20-something years in, uh, in the Advanced Concepts group, and it was a lot of older dudes uh, that had been there a long time and worked on a lot of stuff. And we'd come in and we'd sort of keep to ourselves and we had, we worked on really cool projects, did amazing stuff, but it wasn't, you know, we had, we had some like, like new people coming in, but they were usually on the engineering and research and development side. And then in 2015, they, um, for again, <laughs> through like political stuff, I won't get into, uh, the, that group would sort of shut down and I went back into inline and, uh, and did performance running for two years. And I ended up bailing in 2017. But when I went back to Inline, uh, Xavier was one of the first people I met and he sort of like dragged me out of my shell. Like I was like, I was pretty introverted. Like I, I didn't really know like a lot of, you know, sort of the younger culture around sneakers and how much they appreciated some of this older stuff. And he was like one of the first people that, that like showed interest and he showed me, he's like, you got to get on Instagram, you got to like do this, you got to like, and he showed me that, uh, that people were interested in it. And he was just such a, a humble, uh, humble dude. Uh, I honestly have a lot, uh, to sort of thank him for, for, you know, having a presence on Instagram and getting to talk to people like you and uh, a whole younger generation of people that, that. Appreciate that stuff, and not only appreciate that stuff, but take it and create new stuff that's even more exciting, and sort of start the next generation of uh, of that. It's it was really humbling, and, uh, and it, it, he's a great dude.
0: Um, what do you feel like the lasting legacy of the Run Ten is, like twenty five years later?
1: It's like it's just really cool that uh so you don't you don't get to pick if you don't get to design an iconic shoe right you don't get to say hey like i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna design an iconic shoe because i've had a million design briefs that say iconic shoe (laughs) you can sit down and design a shoe um but so much of it is out of your control and so much of it is just pure luck and circumstance. Uh, so not to get too full of myself at all. It was, it was a time and place that was right for that shoe to happen. And the resources and teams that came together to make it happen at that moment, I've never seen reproduced again on that scale. Uh, it was a time when Reebok was against the ropes uh, they had a singular voice that, and Paul Fireman that owned the company that could dictate what was going to happen. Uh, and, and he, they opened a brand new development center in in South Korea with hand picked staff of all of the best people, uh, from all over the world. And, uh, this was literally an all-star crew of shoemakers and, uh, And this was the first project that went through the first uh, development center that Reebok had ever funded completely as a company because we had used contract manufacturing the whole time. Uh, So there was so much at stake with this one project, Uh, design, development, uh, sales, marketing, every aspect of Reebok was aligned to make it happen. And... uh, Everyone took it seriously and it was amazing. It was uh and again, not to be too full of myself, it, it I was just sort of fortunate to be in that position at that time. Uh, to be a part of it.
0: Nah, man, you deserve it and um <laughs> just be just because you just because your contributions to the sneaker world. But I kinda wanna like like talk about like what are you up to these days? Um you're not working with Reebok anymore. Are you working on like anything big as far as sneakers go or concepts go.
1: Oh hell yeah! I'm gonna change the world, man. Um. So do I get to plug my stuff?
0: Yeah, guys.
1: It. Right. <laughs> so my wife and I started a slipper brand. Uh, just to you know, because I don't have enough going on. Just just to pass the time the whole time traveling and the premise behind it was traveling in Asia for like 25 years. Um, we had a collection of Asian hotel slippers. So whenever you go to Asia, uh, and either I never went to nice hotels in the U S probably, or any hotels in the U S before then, or, uh, they don't have them, but they give you slippers. And, uh, and I always had a collection of hotel slippers and, uh, and heather did too and when we when i I got out uh you know we still have this huge rack of of all these slippers and i you know my favorite hotel slippers from like you know the intercontinental in hong kong had some sweet ones uh you know and i had always thought and of course you're super cost conscious like as a designer as well like you're you're literally fighting over like pennies. Like you have, you know, a $20 FOB or something. You're trying to make costs. You're fighting for your design and materials and stuff like that. And I'm like free slippers, man. How do they make free slippers? Uh, so it was sort of a fun design exercise because the slippers never really fit people with like Western feet. They were, they were uh too pointy and your heels hung over the side. Um, so we, we actually found a high volume, uh, slipper factory and we made a really simple center seam sort of running, running silhouette, uh, design, uh, and made, made slippers, slipper shoes. Uh, and there's some, some import and export advantages to, to calling them slippers as well. And there's also a tooling advantage cause I don't have to, the biggest investment in, uh, and making footwear is buying all the tooling. And if you can die cut out bottoms, but any, anyway, ultra leisure.co ultra hyphen leisure.co is, uh, is our slipper brand, you got all
0: sorts of crazy ideas.
1: Uh, so the other thing I did is, uh, man, how much time do you have?
0: Right, we still got a few more minutes.
1: <laughs> all right. So hopefully i don't incriminate myself. But I started moonlighting uh, doing military contracting uh, uh, when I was at Reebok. Uh, it turns out in, uh, in the mid 2000s, the government started realizing they were taking young, super athletic people and they were loading them up with equipment and weapons and making them do really uh, athletic stuff. So they started reaching out to, uh, to athletic manufacturers um, with experience and, and equipment and articulation and lightweight and breathability and all the things that make good sports equipment also makes good body armor. So I worked on a couple of body armor uh, programs and that was really cool. Um, and I love military stuff. My my, my rule is nothing that uh, that hurts people. I'll work on protective systems and uh, and stuff like that, but yeah, you know, I don't do weapons or or anything like that. Um, so that. That created sort of a, a bunch of contacts and, uh, and, and skills that eventually led to me meeting a guy named uh, Dr. Hur. So another, another interesting plug, uh, Google search uh, Dr. Hugh Her. Uh And, and he is just an amazing guy. He, uh, he was a child prodigy climber um, and he lost both of his legs in the eighties in a climbing accident. Uh, and instead of admitting defeat, uh, and there were some complications. I think uh, one of the guys on the rescue team uh, died getting him out. His partner uh, was pretty banged up. So he had, he had kind of a burden. Uh, you can He wrote a book. It's, it's an amazing book. Uh, it's a couple books. But anyway, he built himself bionic legs. Uh, well, first he built himself... Uh, um, prosthetic legs with titanium climbing wedges and broke all his previous climbing records. Uh, then he went to uh, Harvard and then MIT. Uh, he's now a professor at the Media Lab. Uh, and he started a spinoff company uh, with two of his grad students um, taking his technology and bionic prosthetics and, uh, and Luke Mooney and uh, J.F. Duval's work and exoskeletons and human augmentation and started another company. Uh, so <laughs> I went to the MIT media lab for an interview in, uh, in like 2016 ish. And uh, I was totally blown away and I went home and I, I begged my wife to work on it. And we worked out um, a deal where I worked basically part time at Reebok for a little while and then part time at this company. Uh, until it got too, too crushing. It was just like I, I was working like nonstop. <laughs> and, uh, and I was feeling like I, I wasn't doing a good job on, on pretty much either one, you know, because they both ended up with like full time job sort of expectations. And, uh, and I, I ended up jumping uh, to this company called defy.com, D E P H Y.com. Uh, and we make exoskeletons, and it's the first uh, true, uh, untethered uh, human augmentation uh, in the world. So, super fun project. I uh, get to work with uh, extremely smart people and be the dumb shoe guy.
0: Well, I just want to thank you for joining us today. Like, you made this episode very educational, and it was an honor to have someone like you on this program.
1: Sam I'm I'm humbled people still care about the stuff we worked on man it, it was an honor appreciate it